Everything in our culture is about maximizing luxury and relaxation and comfort and the good life. And I think that that has created a society of very unhappy people. What we should be telling people and encouraging them to do is to seek out discomfort, is to relish and welcome challenges into your life. They can be physical challenges, but they can be anything that is pushing you outside of your comfort zone and forcing you to grow interpersonally, whether it's physically, mentally, emotionally, spiritually. That should be our default to always be searching those out. And that's the only way you become a dynamic, well-rounded person who feels connected to yourself and to your fellow man and to the world. That's ultra-athlete Rich Roll. And this is episode 99 of the Proof Podcast. Hey friends, how have you been? Hopefully all is well. Welcome to the Plant Proof Podcast. It's awesome to be back here again for another episode. For new listeners, welcome for the first time. Thank you for joining us. My name is Simon Hill. I'm the host of this show, physiotherapist, nutritionist. I'm glad that you've managed to to find the show and I hope you get something out of today's episode that helps you become more mindful and conscious of the way that you live. That's what each episode is about, non-judgmental, non-preachy space to talk about diet, to talk about being mindful of our decisions and an opportunity to sit down with inspiring people from all over the world, doctors, nutritionists, dietitians, athletes, people who have overcome chronic disease, and generally folks that are working hard to create positive change in the world. Today's guest, Rich Roll, certainly knows a thing or two about overcoming adversity. I can safely assume most, if not all of you, are familiar with Rich's story. He's been on the show before and is the host of an incredible podcast, The Rich Roll Podcast. As a refresher, Rich was a very promising young swimmer at Stanford University, ended up graduating law school and working as an entertainment lawyer, where he developed a drinking habit to the point of addiction, even found himself on the wrong side of the law with with a few DUIs. Things reached a a tipping point in his early 30s where he needed help, which ultimately led to sobriety. But giving up alcohol meant replacing it with something else. And Rich started working heavily, eating poorly, and by age 40 found himself overweight and unhappy. And something had to change. He got back into the pool. He stopped eating animal products and junk food. And over the next decade became an ultra-athlete and one of the world's fittest men. For the more in-depth story, jump back to episode 35 or four, an even deeper dive and a really inspiring read. Check out his book, Finding Ultra. All right, let's do this. This is episode 99 with Rich Roll from Venice Beach, Los Angeles. Hope you enjoy, friends. I'll see you on the other side. One of the best ways to track our health is to regularly get blood work done so we can take a peek under the hood and get a feel for the state of our cardiometabolic and hormonal health. You can do this with your local doctor or you can use a service like Inside Tracker. The nice thing about Inside Tracker is they make the process super convenient. 
You can organise their phlebotomist, a person who draws blood, to come to your house or office to do the blood draw. A few days later, your results show up in the Inside Tracker app, and they provide lifestyle recommendations based on whether a particular test is suboptimal, normal, or optimal. I've checked Inside Tracker's lifestyle recommendations, specifically the exercise and nutrition ones, and I can confidently say they are evidence-based and in line with the information shared in both my book and on this show. They even added ApoB to their ultimate plan, based on recommendation from myself and others. It's also nice to have all of your lab results readily accessible in one mobile app, making it easy to pull up past results and see trends and patterns over time. Get 20% off the entire Inside Tracker store. To get started, go to insidetracker.com forward slash Simon for this exclusive offer. That's insidetracker.com forward slash Simon. If you're a long-time listener of this show, you'll be well aware of the scientific evidence that supports a high-fiber, plant-rich diet for good long-term health. And while I certainly believe in a food-first approach, there is a role for supplements to help optimize the intake of specific nutrients and address any nutritional gaps. Enter Emil. Emil is a plant-based wellness company with a series of products to help you optimize your plant-based diet. Two of my favorite products being the Essential 8 Multivitamin and the Optimal Omega Plus. The Essential 8 contains eight key nutrients that plant-based eaters often fall short in. And the Optimal Omega Plus contains a direct source of DHA and EPA omega-3s, same as in fish, but from algae. In fact, taking Optimal Omega Plus daily, which contains 750 milligrams of EPA and DHA, is equivalent to eating two to three pieces of fatty fish per week in line with the nutrition recommendations globally. To get your Essential 8 and Optimal Omega Plus, head to theproof.com forward slash friends and follow the link which will get you an extra 10% off your first order. That's theproof.com forward slash friends. Rich, welcome back. Good to be with you, man. Thanks for uh, thanks for having me back. We get to uh, reprise conversations that that uh, we began in Australia this past winter. It's nice to see you in my neck of the woods. Yeah, likewise. I mean, it's always nice to come to to Venice when the sun's shining like this. It's not bad right now. I was I was swimming in the ocean yesterday around Point Doom. Beautiful morning. I just I was like, I can't believe it's winter. It's got to be one of the I think along with Sydney, one of the easiest climates to to live in. Yeah, it's pretty great. <laughs> I said to Jai on the way over here, I go, you realize it's winter right now. Most places in America, in North America, are just freezing, slushy, gray, wet, yeah, and yeah. unpleasant. And she's like, I want to go where it snows. It's like you always want what you, what's <laughs> different from what you have. Yeah. Well, I'm I'm kind of packed for all seasons this trip because, I mean, the, the real purpose of this stint that I'm doing in the States other than book writing and catching up with you and a few other people is catch up with my dad. He sort of lives near Chicago is the easiest way of describing it. Not that close, actually, Missouri, Columbia, um, Midwest, uh-huh. but it'll be much cooler there. So I've got a I've little got, bit, I've got a few jackets packed and yeah. um, we're going to check out, there's a documentary festival there called True False. Have you ever heard of that? Uh, I don't think so. It's kind of like Sundance, but um just for docs 
Yeah, just for docs. So like there's short documentaries, which I think are 30 to 40 minutes and then some some longer ones, hour and a half. So cool. you just kind of jump from one to the other and select different genres and yeah, it's going to be cool. Yeah, nice, man. And then slipping over to New York. So then that's going to be cold uh-huh. as well, I imagine. Yeah, but it does, <laughs> in New York, it doesn't matter what the weather's like because you don't go to New York City for the weather, Yeah, you know? It's like, to me, it almost doesn't matter. Like, I have such an amazing time every time I go there. Yeah, That's a good absolutely. trip. I don't know how you're going to get any writing done, but, you know, good luck with that. I know. <laughs> I know. It's, um, it's juggling writing and then catching up and recording podcasts and <laughs> try, right. trying not to record too many. What is your book deadline? About three months ago. So uh-huh. Right. That's about right. <laughs> my, uh, my editor will will be very thankful when this uh-huh. last bit's handed in, I think. But it's just happened in an organic process. I didn't necessarily want to sit down and just rush it. Well, I think we talked about this when when we had dinner last. Like you want it to be, you have, you feel that pressure. And then also you, you just, there's so much anxiety uh, hanging over you all the time that you just want it to be done. But I can tell you as somebody who's gone through this process a couple of times, once you turn it, like once it's done, it's done forever. You know what I mean? Like, and, and you want to be able to look back on it years from now and say, I'm proud of that. And I, I wrote the, the, the book that I wanted to write and I still stand by it as opposed to like, oh, I rushed that part because they were putting pressure on me or I just wanted it to be over with. Right. So I think it's smart to take that extra time and, and really sit with it and make sure that you're expressing yourself in, you know, the highest in, in your highest capacity. Yeah, well, I mean, I can probably blame you for the fact that I am running late because that, oh, was, no. that, that was... I hope the, your publisher isn't listening to this. You, like, blame me. That was the exact guy. advice you gave yeah. me and I kind of did. I just, I took the foot off the accelerator in terms of trying to write a certain number of words each day and just focused on the quality aspect. Mm-hmm. And look, it's taken a little bit longer, but I'm really happy with the direction that that it's gone in and how it's coming together. So it'd be cool. Yeah, that's good. Done. And I, and I, you know, the, there's an open invite for you to come on my show. I've asked you a couple of times, but you're holding out until <laughs> this book is done. So whenever well, I mean, that time happens, I need to when, give you something you know, to, yeah. to talk about. Right? <laughs> what do you mean? There's plenty to talk about. I'm happy to wait until the book is, you know, on the precipice of coming yeah. out, but I, I can't imagine we, we would have a shortage of things to talk about. No, I mean, well, we'll catch up. It'll be, it'll, it'll be coming out in September, October. So, right. All right. I promise you I'll come up to Calabasas. All right, cool. You mentioned Jaya. Jaya's here. Yeah. Hey, Jaya. Jaya's Jaya, Jaya was right doing now. some serious artwork just then. I, yeah. She's I caught a glimpse of that. The sketch pad out. So I don't know. She doesn't really want attention on her at the moment. Sorry, Jaya. <laughs> <laughs> um, Rich, what's been happening since Australia, since you, you, you got back? It's been a couple months. Yeah, it's been a couple months. So first of all, I, you know, I had an amazing time and thank you for being such a, a gracious host. When I was in um, Bondi, you really helped make me feel welcome. And I love that place. Like I just, I slid right into like what it's like to live there and it just, it felt really easy and great. And you were a big part in, in, in giving me that warm, fuzzy feeling. So I appreciate that. And it was, it, it basically served every purpose that I wanted it to, which was to basically just give me like a, you know, I hadn't taken a, a, a real break in a very long time, many years. So I really took advantage of that. And then I came back and basically, you know, wasted no time getting back to where I was right before I went to Australia. Were you, like, were you itching to get back into it? Like, no, I mean, or? literally after being in, we went up to Byron Bay too. And I was like, man, I should have 
booked this, you know, I, yeah, I could, yeah. e- I said to Julie, like a day before we were leaving, like, I was like, I could easily stay here a couple more weeks. Like I wasn't quite ready to come back, but you know, I took a whole month off, went back, got back into the flow of things and kind of inherited a schedule that had been established before my trip to Australia, where suddenly I was looking at three to five podcast interviews a week, like multiple weeks in a row, which I don't know about you, but like more than two a week really puts me into the red. And, uh, and it, it, it didn't take long before I was completely exhausted, <laughs> exhausted again and thinking like, how did this happen? It's like, I just got back and now I feel like I need to go, you know, take another month back off. Back to Bar and Bay. <laughs> and it's really forced me to take a hard look at how I do what I do and my relationship to my work and to really deconstruct the process of, you know, what goes into putting the show up every week. Because I think I spend a lot of time on aspects of it that are important to me, but probably aren't important to anyone else. And I have an irrational attachment to things being a certain way. And I have almost like an obsessive compulsive thing where it's like, well, if I don't do it that way, then the whole thing's going to cave in and be a disaster. And it's just, it's an illusion, you know, and I have to create a healthier, more sustainable system for how I do what I do. And I have people that, that help me and work with me now, and I just need to better empower them. So I'm in the process of trying to figure out that at the moment. Disentangle that. Yeah. I mean, I get it. You've got, you've got high standards for the show and expectations and you're at 500, which I want to talk about soon. Um, but yeah, three, four, five a week, that's getting into Joe Rogan territory. That's crazy. Like I, well, Joe really figured out an amazing approach to doing it because first of all, he establishes that he doesn't really do any research. (laughs) You know what I mean? Like everybody kind of knows, like there's no expectation that he's read your book or whatever, but the guest coming on understands the value proposition of being on that show. So they come loaded to bear, like they're ready to go. Like they come with notes, like they know what they want to say and prepared to take advantage of, of, you know, that visibility. And then Joe finishes it and walks away and that's it. It goes up immediately. There's no post-production cycle. Whereas you and I, we have this elaborate post-production, like these videos have to be edited and there's a blog post and like whatever, you know, like there's a whole rigmarole that goes into that. That's incredibly time consuming that he's just dispensed with. That being said, I still don't know how he does three to five a week. Like he'll do two, three hour shows in a day. And then he'll go to the comedy store and do a set that night. Like after doing a podcast, like I'm, I need to like go to a matinee or something. Yeah, I need yeah, to like yeah. he's got a some, break. He's got some you serious know? podcast yeah. stamina. I mean, and some of his episodes are uh, three, four hours long, depending on the, yeah. the topic. I know, I know. <laughs> Let's try some of these cheeses. Yeah. We've got uh, some of Julie's Srimu. Is that how you say so, it? Julie recently launched a plant-based cheese company called Srimu, S-R-I-M-U. Srimati is her spiritual name. Mu is sort of an ode to the cow, Srimu. Not cheeses, do life, not cheese is her tagline. And she's really, I mean, she's been working on these recipes for over five years at this point. And it started from this perspective that, and I'm sure you hear this all the time, like people say like, oh, I'd love to go plant-based, but you know, I just love cheese and there's no way I'm going to give up cheese. She's like, I'm going to figure this out. And I think she really has. Like she's taken this whole idea of plant-based cheeses to a whole new level. Like these things are insane. They taste incredible. What's that that we just had? Well, this one like is, like, is like her version of a blue cheese that the blue mottled coloring in there is from spirulina. And it's like a fine 
you know, like a fine aged cheese that you would get in a, in a really high end cheese shop. And I would hold it up against any of the finest dairy cheeses in the world. And we've had opportunities to share this cheese with all different types of, you know, people, mostly non-vegan people, fancy cocktail parties. And it's interesting to watch people like, oh, I don't, you know, I don't know, like, uh, all vegan cheese kind of tastes the same. I'm not into it. And then taste it and just oh, like just literally off. The, the expression that comes over their face. Wow. What's so, that? I think this one is called, I forget the name. One's called Birdie and uh, one's called, um, I don't know, we need the labels on them over there. We got the labels over there. Um, but this is kind of, this, this whiter one here is more like a sort of a camembert. It's incredible. So it's, it's a very uh, intense flavor. Yeah. It's awesome. Yeah, and I mean, and they, and it's not even just the taste. They look like, they look like cheese. Exactly. Yeah, as it, look, it looks like a beautiful aged wheel of cheese. And I mean, every detail of it, she has dialed in from the box, like the whole unboxing experience. It's a subscription box model. So basically you sign up, you get a box every month or every, you know, or every quarter, depending upon what you want to do. And everything about it is very elegant and, and kind of um, bespoke, which is cool. And she was saying in Sydney, what the other aspect I really liked was the sort of philosophy that she has with her staff and the environment that she's yeah. creating there. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Everyone there, like her, everybody on her staff is called a sacred maker and they have these black jumpsuits with these cool patches on and they do group meditations. And like, it's all about like her whole thing is using this cheese as a vehicle for spiritual transformation, right? It begins with what you put in your body, but it extends from there into your perception of the world and how you navigate it. And, you know, I mean, listeners who know anything about Julie know that she's, you know, not afraid of the deep end of the pool. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's, uh, it's incredible. So if you haven't tried it, check it out. Yeah. From the top, congratulations on, on 500 episodes. Thank you. It really is a, a masterclass, your show. And I personally have gained so much from it. So I can only imagine how much people around the world have, have also gained from, from listening to your insight and the insight from all of your guests. It's in many ways, I was kind of thinking about how I would summarize my experience with listening to your show. And it's almost a form of therapy mm. in that mm -hmm. I, th I think about you know, listening to whether it's your own story or listening to guests that you've had on and talking about different adversity or challenges that they face and how they've navigated it and worked through it. And I've been able to relate to that and, and take guidance from that. And not only that, send it to friends who I know maybe had been dealing with something and I'd know, I'd know okay, that episode, that'll resonate with them mm. um, in a nice, really safe space to listen to two or three people talk about a certain topic. So it is incredible what you've done with that. And I went back yesterday to your first episode ever. Oh my God. <laughs> <laughs> I can only um, imagine. So we'll come to that, but because I, I wrote down a few sort of keywords that stuck with me from that episode that I want to explore a bit. But before that, have you have you sort of stopped to celebrate, not not so much, I guess, the number, but more the impact of the show since 500? I mean, first of all, thank you for those kind words. That means a lot to me because I, I, I think that you, what, you're, what you're doing and what you're putting out in the world is a, of, of a very high caliber and quality. Um, and so, you know, I respect the work that you're doing. So your words are, are meaningful to me. So I appreciate that. I guess I would say that, yes, I'm cognizant of 
500 being like symbolic and, and, you know, um, and providing a, a moment, you know, where it's important to pause and take stock and have gratitude and, and reflect, which isn't my natural disposition. I kind of have to force myself to do that. I probably could celebrate a little bit more than I have. Cause like I said, I have been on a bit of a habit trail here where I haven't given myself a moment to stop, but I don't spend a lot of time dwelling on or thinking about impact or how other people are being, you know, affected by it. Because I think that that, I mean, I'm aware of that and it's kind of mind blowing, but I don't like to focus on that because then that starts to affect how I do what I do. And if, if I start making decisions based on, well, if I do this, then these, you know, I, I have to just do what moves me and what I have to follow my curiosity. I have to be true to myself. I have to be authentic to who I am. And in order to really do that, I have to kind of not think about all of that other stuff and just be present with what I'm doing. Otherwise, I think I'll start making decisions based on impact rather than what got me to this place, which is curiosity. Yeah, that's that's interesting. I like that because you talk about serving others, right, a lot. But what I take from that is the serving others is very much a side effect of your curiosity and endeavor to learn more about certain topics and certain people. Yeah, I think it's a blend. I mean, I do think like what would be in service to the audience and I have to bear that in mind to some extent. But the way that I'm of maximum service to that audience is by being authentic to my own curiosity, right? So if I start to think, well, you know, they need to hear this and I'm going to do, even though it doesn't interest me, it's going to be flat and... It'll be a bit contrived. Yeah, it'll be contrived and it'll feel, it just won't feel like, and I've, I've made that mistake. I mean, these are things that I've done a million times that I've just learned over the years of doing 500 episodes, like what works and what doesn't and, and where I've gone awry and, and like kind of w what my lane is, what my sweet spot is. If you've tuned in to the many episodes I've done focusing on cardiovascular disease, the leading cause of death globally, you'll be well aware that ApoB is a better biomarker for measuring our risk of having a heart attack or stroke than LDL cholesterol. The only problem is that not every pathology lab is set up to test ApoB levels. Fortunately, this has now been made easier by Inside Tracker, a leading health and wellness company founded in 2009 by experts in aging, genetics, and biometric data from Harvard, MIT, and Tufts that provides lifestyle advice based on your blood test results. With the new edition of ApoB, InsideTracker's ultimate plan now analyzes 44 biomarkers, including metabolic health markers like HbA1c, triglycerides, and blood glucose, important nutrients like vitamin D and iron, as well as hormones like cortisol, sex hormone binding globulin, free testosterone, and total testosterone before giving you science-backed lifestyle advice to optimize your health and longevity. Your data tells the story of your health. With Inside Tracker, get to know your story and create a lifestyle that delivers better health for longer. Get 20% off the entire Inside Tracker store. To get started and redeem this offer, go to insidetracker.com forward slash Simon. That's insidetracker.com forward slash Simon. Hey friends, the scientific evidence on lifestyle habits that lead to longevity is clear. Now it's time to put this knowledge into action. 
I'm excited to announce the Living Proof Longevity Challenge, a 12-week program to build evidence-based lifestyle habits to optimize longevity. My team and I have transformed over hundreds of hours of conversations with experts on aging, nutrition, and exercise into a life-changing 12-week program that will challenge you to develop habits that lead to a longer, better life. This is a unique opportunity to gather health data about yourself that has the potential to change your life for the better. You'll start by testing 10 longevity biomarkers that tell the truth about where your longevity stands right now, today. Following that, you'll get a personalized longevity score to guide your 12 weeks of habit building that will boost your score and improve your biomarkers for the better. After the challenge, you'll retest your 10 biomarkers and see the proof of how powerful these science-backed habits really are. Head over to theproof.com forward slash living proof to download your zero cost copy of the Living Proof Longevity Challenge today. That's theproof.com forward slash living proof. Look forward to joining you on this journey. Do you normally, like after you wind up an episode, you have a bit of a, a feeling as to how that message in that episode would be received by other people listening? I generally do, but that doesn't mean that I'm correct about that. You know, and I used to editorialize in the introductions and in the outros, like here's what, you know, here's what's going to happen and here's how you're going to feel about it. And I've learned to no longer do that because I think that that robs people of their own independent experience of, of what is going down. And there's been moments where I've put episodes up and I thought that's pretty lackluster. Like I didn't do a good job. I don't feel like the guest was that into it, but you know, it wasn't so terrible that I'm not going to share it. And I have this instinct to like, tell the, you know, like be like, Hey, listen, you know, just uh, curb your enthusiasm for this one because it's probably not going to be that good. And I've learned to not do that because even ones I think are perhaps missing the mark, then they end up doing great and people get a lot out of them. Or ones that I think are incredible, they just miss, mm -hmm. you know, so, yeah, well, which is fine. It's like, for me, it's like, I'm just trying to create an experience that, that I would be interested in. And that doesn't mean that everyone is going to be. But I, I stay out of the business of, of trying to predict how it's going to land. Yeah, I guess if you, if you say a little bit too much about what you thought about the episode in the intro, it could You're preconditioning. Yeah. yeah, how, they, how mm. they hear it Yeah, and how it affects them. So common ground from episode one. <laughs> yeah. Oh, my God. <laughs> I, I, went I, mean, back. I haven't gone back and listened to that since I did it. Maybe uh, once over the years, uh, years and years ago, but I couldn't even. Little tip for anyone. I, and I'm not sure if this is just my phone. But I was going back and <laughs> I went back to the first episode, uh -huh. right? Or what I thought was the first episode on the Apple iTunes. Oh, yeah, because it doesn't go all and, the way back. And I hit an episode yeah. with Patrick. Um, Baboomia. Yeah. <laughs> and I started listening. I'm like, surely this is not the first episode. No, no, no. And that was the 2015. So yeah. then I thought, okay, let's try Spotify. Spotify goes all the way back. Mm -hmm. And it has a button at the top, so you don't have to scroll through 500. You can just click oldest to newest. Mm -hmm. What was neat, same same music. You've had the same music the whole time. Right. Yeah. Well, a couple thoughts. I mean, first of all, yeah, I told my nephew and my stepsons, like, I need a theme song. So do something. And in 10 to 15 minutes, they like whipped that up using my bike and the chain and like, you know, yeah. it's, it's cool. And I always thought that would be a placeholder until like they had time to really do something cool or I got something else. And 
it just stuck and I've just always used it. I think it's become cool. Like, I mean, that's like the thing, you know, (laughs) it was never meant to be like this long-term thing. It just kind of happened that way. Uh, Tip number two, don't record, uh, you know, podcast or any audio for that matter in a giant warehouse with like 50 foot high ceilings and concrete floors where it's raining out. Yeah. Not a good idea. With microphones that are intended for musical instruments and not human voices. Yeah, I mean it's 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 not at the production level <laughs> no, of your no, show yeah, now, yeah. but it's it's it's. It listenable. didn't matter then. I mean, I've, like in 2012, it didn't matter because like nobody there was. I mean, people weren't using you know these these fancy sure mics and you know it was just it was a different time. Yeah, so it's all relative. Yeah, kind of like websites, even though that wasn't 20 years ago. That was only that was actually that was what eight years ago. It yeah. was, yeah. I mean, it was end of 2012, so yeah. seven plus. And, you know, I think, and you just listened to it, so you tell me if I, my recollection is incorrect. I can, but I've got notes, so. Yeah, I mean, I, <laughs> I th- my, my sense is, I do remember being very convicted that I didn't want it to be a vegan-specific or triathlon-specific podcast, that I wanted to use it as a platform for personal growth in, in a myriad of ways. And I, I just wanted it to be open in that regard and not be too limited in scope or focus no i mean yeah you made that clear i think you even sort of drew parallels with joe rogan in that he could sit down and talk about any topic and and help an audience understand a whole wide spectrum of of things about life you mentioned in that and it's relevant now because you said you just said before i was jerry rigging up something yeah. <laughs> you mentioned in in that episode that you'd sort of jerry-rigged up yeah. the, the setup. Well, I didn't know what I was doing. I mean, basically using XLR cords and a soundboard that were my son's, you know, from my son's musical setup and trying to figure out how to, how to use that for spoken word. I mean, I, the only way that I even got it set up was going online and Googling, like, how do you do a podcast? And f- and stumbling upon this guy, you know who Pat Flynn is? No. Yeah, he's one of the OGs in the podcaster space. He has a show called Smart Passive Income. Kind of like an inter- internet marketing dude. And he put up a series of YouTube videos that basically said, here's how you do it. And then, like, every step from, like, how you configure, you know, the WordPress page and get your RSS, like, every, every little stupid thing that you have to do to get your show up on iTunes, which for people that don't podcast, it seems like it should be easier than it is. Like it's still a little bit more tricky and convoluted than it needs to be in order to do it, which kind of creates a little bit of a barrier to entry. Like you kind of really have to know like, okay, I want to do this because it's not like you just flick a switch and then you're on Apple Podcasts. No, I think... Does and do you think anybody cares about this? I think <laughs> this no, is I interesting mean, at I all think... to anybody. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. well, all of a sudden, I get a whole yeah, lot of one star reviews. Thanks, <laughs> yeah, Rich. <I'm> sorry. <laughs> um, no, but the I did the same thing. I, I remember um, searching and found something about Tim Ferriss. But anyway, the the importance of going back to that first episode for me and sort of where I want to go um, from there, other than the the sort of jerry rigging of your setup is more the time of your life that that all took place in. Mm-hmm. So I think you mentioned that your book, A Finding Ultra, had just come out. You just finished touring. So the book came out in May of 2012. And, you know, at that time, I think we might have talked about this last time. I can't remember specifically, but 
you know, I did what I could to push that book out into the world. And, and, you know, I didn't have the kind of profile that I have now. Like if you were an ultra endurance athlete or perhaps knew a little bit about triathlon, maybe you'd heard of me at some point, but it wasn't like I had some massive Twitter following or anything like that. So the book comes out and, you know, I'm doing, I'm basically saying yes to any opportunity to like push it out into the world, like any podcast, any interview, like I did, book signings where I'd go to a Barnes and Noble and two people would show up or go to a running shoe store and six people would show up and I'd take them out on a run, you know, like stuff like that. So it wasn't like Finding Ultra was a New York Times bestseller. It very much was not. It did fine. And what I'm most proud of is that it continues to sell year after year. It's doing just as well now as it as it ever has. So it's become this perennial bestseller. But at the time, there was no indication that that was that it was going to basically have any kind of shelf life whatsoever. So I did what I could do. And then that kind of the sunset on, you know, the whole book promotion thing. And one of the kind of seminal themes and lines in the book is, you know, when your heart is true, the universe will conspire to support you. Like it's all about this journey, this like journey of the heart, like this journey towards greater authenticity that wherein like I had to confront myself in a very profound level and have tremendous faith as I stepped out and tried things that were new and different in order to kind of reclaim my life. And in adhering to that philosophy, you know, here I was, I'd put this book out in the world and I was like, and I, and when the book came out, I let go of my, I let my bar membership lapse I thought I'm not going to be a lawyer anymore. And I am now available like to serve this message in whatever way the universe sees fit and hopefully find a way to support my family in the doing. And the phone just wasn't ringing. Like after a certain amount of time, like it just wasn't happening. And it became very difficult financially to try to figure out like how we were going to survive as a family. So much so that we got to a point where we, really had difficulty paying even our, you know, like our garbage bill, like stupid bills that should be easy to pay. And we weren't able to pay our mortgage. We had cars repossessed, like it got dark and gnarly. It was very unclear the path forward. Like there was no like, oh, well, it'll be fine because then this is going to happen. Like I could get speaking gigs and get a, you know, an airplane ticket to go speak at a veg fest and get paid maybe 500 bucks. But like, I got four kids in the morning. And it's like, that's not going to work. You know, it's not going to make it sustainable for me. And then what happened was kind of at a really low, dark moment, this guy, Chris Jabe, who is a entrepreneur, had read my book and I had met him previously. He owned this property on the North shore of Kauai. And he was trying to figure out how to converted into a more communal space. And he, for whatever reason, he was like, Hey, you could, you, you know, I really was inspired by your book. And I thought you would be a good person to maybe help me figure this out. Like why he thought that I don't know. It's not like I had any experience in like development of this nature in any way, but he's who showed up and he was like, I'll pay you like come out to the Island. You can live in these yurts on my organic farm. It's a year, like a tent. Yeah, like basically these, yeah, basically teepees. And we're like, okay. And then literally like within, like I think 10 days we were in Kauai. So our entire family. Let me just interrupt you before you carry on. Yeah. That's a pretty spontaneous decision, right? It was Um, spontaneous and yet it was almost like there was no other option because nothing else was presenting itself. So you learn to like follow the thread. Yeah. So you, you go over to Hawaii. 
So we got a whole hiding the island like, life. <laughs> yeah, we like leave our house. We, you know, like our nice house in Calabasas. And suddenly we're living in tents, you know, on this yurt with, with, um, we're, there's like a little yurt village. There's like, I don't know, five or six yurts or something like that. And then like a central yurt that was a communal kitchen. And then another yurt that was divided into showers and bathrooms. And we're sharing this yurt village with the, um, what do you call them? The woofers, like the people that work, the kids that work on the farm. And there was one kid who was like an alcoholic and he was like getting super drunk and passing out. And like, I was like, what are we doing here? I mean, that's a long way you away know, from what you were working as a lawyer in New York, right? I was what New York or, and then San Francisco and then LA. You yeah, must have like, sat down at some time. <laughs> like, this is crazy. And trying to help Chris figure out like this land. And I was like, I don't know if anything's going to happen here. And God bless him for giving us this opportunity. Like, I mean, I just, I love him to death for that. Uh, but there were moments where I was like, wait, what are we, what am I doing here? Like, what is this? And I felt after a while, I started to get a little island fever. Like, okay, I've worked really hard to try to create this new life. I wrote this book and I, I really want to be tapped into culture and society and feel integrated, you know, with people. And I felt very detached and I, and I think isolated. Yeah. And I, and I, and also like thinking, what's my next thing? Like I did the book and now we're out here, but like, is this, what I'm supposed to be doing. And I just had a creative itch. Like I just needed to do something. And so the podcast was really the result of, of that confluence of emotions and events. And it was intended as nothing other than, you know, an experiment in creativity. It wasn't like, oh, this is my new vocation. And, and you have to really understand that it was a different time. Like in, in, at this moment, I mean, podcasting was not cool. Like it was not like, if you told somebody you had a podcast, they just was like, really, dude? Like, what? What? Like, most people had never listened to one. They didn't know how to listen to one. And aside from some of the OGs like Adam Carolla and Joe Rogan and, you know, I think Chris Hardwick and Kevin Smith, like some, you know, there's a lot of comedians. Comedians were really the first adopters of the platform. Other than that, there wasn't a lot going on. It was very much like a hobbyist Endeavor. So how would you, did you personally, it was when you were writing, right? That you discovered podcasts and. Yeah, I fell in love with them when I, well, it was when I was training for these races because I was, you know, training 20, 25 hours a week and I'd go out for these, you know, all day long rides or these ridiculously long runs and, and I couldn't listen to music and I wanted to distract my mind from the kind of low grade suffering that I was experiencing and I was a very early adopter and fan of podcasts as a medium and I just thought, this is incredible. There's so much amazing information happening. You can literally program your auditory experience all day long if you want. Like, why would you anybody ever listen to the radio again? Like, it, it doesn't make any sense to me. And I was getting so much out of it, listening to hours and hours and hours on the bike. And I think that's where I started to like, you know, just through osmosis, like getting acclimated to that medium. And at the time, technology wasn't where it is now. Like you had to really be intentional, like about wanting to listen to podcasts because you would have to download them on your laptop or your desktop and then bounce them to an iPod. This is pre iPhone and all of that. So you had to really like get it all together, like the day before and organize the whole thing, which obviously was a huge barrier to most people like, you know, getting on board and adopting it. Um, but I just loved it. And when I started mine, I, it, a part of it also was, Who's having the conversations that, that, you know, I wish, you know, I could have listened to when, when I was, you know, navigating these difficult moments in my life. And 
Also, there just wasn't a lot of interesting things happening in the health and wellness space in podcasting. There's a couple mm. shows, but there wasn't a lot of depth. So that was part of the thinking at the time. And when you launched a show, like when I launched it, it like went right to the top of the ranking. There's no competition, you know, no, because now like there's new shows coming up all the time, but in two, late 2012, that wasn't the case. So I was able to get a foothold like immediately. And I think that was a big confidence booster. Like, wow, it's like, in the top 50 shows of all podcasts, like my first episode, like really, can that possibly be true? So that put wind in my sails to keep to keep going. So you started recording at, at Common Ground, right? Mm -hmm. And how long did you guys stay down there as a family? We were there for three months. Yeah, I mean, we, I, we'd been there for a while before I started the podcast, but yeah, we were there like November through February or something like that. November of 2012 through February of 2013. Yeah. It must be cool yeah. to to look back on that um, it's and, cool. and see I where mean, the show <laughs> originated. Yeah, it's cool. I mean, it, it's there's a romantic flair to it, I suppose. But it was also, you know, a difficult and confusing time. So I have a, you know, a challenged relationship with it. And, and our kids also, like, it was hard. You know, we, we went to the, we were living in these yurts and the idea that we might not be coming back to Los Angeles and that our house might not be ours, you know, was a very real thing. And our kids were aware of that. So they have a little bit of, you know, kind of trauma around that too. That's all fine. I mean, Jai, I think was probably too young, but yeah. our other kids, you know, Mathis is like, you know, for a long time, she's like, I don't want to go back to Hawaii because she associated it with, you know, the pressure and anxiety of trying to figure out how we were going to survive. Is Common Ground still still down there now. The property, operating. yeah, Chris ended up selling the property. I mean, it also had this amazing restaurant there that was like the best restaurant on the North Shore. It wasn't 100% plant-based, but mostly plant-based. Is plant this like Hanalei Bay it area? Was, yeah, it was in Kilauea, right yeah. next to Hanalei. It's beautiful around there. And, uh, and this restaurant, I think Chris was losing ridiculous amount of money every month, but it was like the place where everyone wanted to go. Like, Gabby and Laird would be there every day eating their food. And it was like the place where every, it was the common ground. And the property was just insane. It was this really beautiful place. He ended up selling it and he doesn't live in Hawaii anymore. So I don't know exactly what's going on there anymore. I know the restaurant doesn't exist, um, but whoever is steward of it, I hope that they try to figure out a way to maximize yeah. its potential because it's, it's a special place. I think that's one of my favorite places I've visited. It's magical. The energy is very intense on that North Shore. It can crush you yeah. if you're not careful. What was the experience like when you first got there in terms of, I imagine there is not necessarily a divide, but there's very much like locals and then people mm -hmm. that have moved there, like natives and then people that are, have come over from Los Angeles. Yeah, <laughs> it's interesting. I mean, most people's relationship with Hawaii is what it's like to be on vacation there. And when you're living there, it's a very different experience. and that. That experience is dictated in many ways by which island you're on. Every island has its own kind of unique aesthetic and 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 culture. Kauai, particularly the north shore of Kauai, is is, is challenging and tricky. Like I, we had we had a hard time making friends, and a lot of it there's something that happens on it. You know, I don't know if this is particular to Kauai, but when you're on an island, you can get sort of provincial about what's yours and what's not. Like you start to think of everything is a zero sum game. Like, Hey, I'm doing this over here just so you know. And 
stay away from my piece of the yeah. pie. Like there's a, there's a little bit of that that goes on. Bit of territory. Um, and also like, hey, how long have you been here? You know, we've been here longer. Not so much with the natives, but with the other kind of, you know, the Howleys. It's interesting. There. Yeah. So there's a lot of rules and etiquette about how to behave too, that you only start to understand when you've spent a little Sounds bit. Sounds tricky there. to navigate. Yes, yeah, tricky. I mean, look, you know, Laird and Gabby have a place there. They love it. They're fully integrated there. There's there's ways of doing it. I know people that live there that 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 absolutely love it. I mean, for me, it's beautiful and amazing and the people there are incredible. But I, you know, I needed to get back and I, I need a little bit more of an urban environment and yeah. kind of stimulus in order to feel whole. I want to steer this one back to the podcast. You mentioned before that when you first started it, you didn't want it to just be a sort of vegan ultra athlete. You wanted to cover other topics. And one of the topics that you routinely cover is spirituality. Mm -hmm. And it's it's a very interesting topic. I think it means something different to to everyone. And there may be people listening that when they think of spirituality, they think of a hippie, you know, (laughs) commune somewhere, perhaps like common ground. (laughs) But um, this sort of idea of connecting to something bigger than ourselves. What does spirituality mean to you and how, what role does it play in your life? Wow. You hit me with a hard question. How to define that? I mean, first of all, yes, you know, spirituality is a big theme and subject matter on my show. And that's very intentional. I think that I have, you know, if I have a particular talent or ability, it's the facility for taking subjects and subject matters and themes that are traditionally the purview of like the hippie on the commune and being a a vehicle or a translator for those ideas in a way that the bond trader on Wall Street can kind of understand and get behind. Like, I, I feel like I'm a way station in between those two worlds. And I think about that a lot. You know, for me, without getting too woo about the whole thing, like, it's all spiritual. Like, whether I'm training for an Ultraman or doing a podcast, like, these are all expressions of, you know, a, a greater spirituality. And for me, these pursuits, personal growth, et cetera, are all ways of trying to expand my internal capacity to connect with myself and other human beings and the great unknown in as profound a way as I possibly can. I don't have a specific particular definition of what spirituality is or what it means to me other than to say that I walk the earth with humility and I have a very deep understanding or or profound connection with the fact that I know very little <laughs> and and that there are forces at play beyond my comprehension and that there is a greater meaning to all of this. And that's going to look different for different people. Suffice it to say for myself that it's not about the material world. And so I feel very much that I am here in service to try to help other people transform their lives in positive ways. And I trust and believe that if I can be a vehicle for that, that they will then go on their own trajectory. And I trust them to have their own spiritual experience that has nothing to do with me defining it for them. Has that sort of understanding and humility been a spectrum or was there a certain stage of your life where it became very apparent? 
Well, I've been brought to my knees more than a couple times in different ways. And, you know, I'm somebody who, you know, I feel like I'm a pretty smart guy and I think I'm a good judge of character and I make good decisions. And yet I continually find myself in these like really painful scenarios where I'm forced to, I'm forced to be humble and I'm forced to really deconstruct that whole sense of identity. And the more times you do that, the more you realize like, hey man, like, I don't, you know, far be it from me to give people advice or to tell them how they should live their lives. You know, I, and I'm very aware of that. Like recovery is a big part of my story. And one of the things that you learn in the 12 step halls is not to give advice, to share your experience, you know? And I, so I try to restrict I try to be circumspect in that regard. Like you, you will be hard pressed to find me ever saying like, you should do this and this is how you should live your life. Like I, I don't, you know, whether it's diet, nutrition, spirituality, you know, fitness, any of this kind of stuff. Like I don't do that. You know, I bring people on who are smarter than me and have things to offer in that regard. And I'm happy to share what has worked for me and what hasn't and why. But I steer clear of telling people directly what they should or they shouldn't do. You, you and that goes back to humility. Sorry to interrupt you. I don't, it's not my place. No, I mean, and that's why your show is so approachable, I think, the position that you take. Mm-hmm. You mentioned being brought to your knees a few times. I guess another theme of your show that you often cover is adversity and the learnings from that. And this may seem really weird, but from a position of, uh, you know, I look at my life, for example, and I, and I think there's probably people listening that perhaps a similar narrative runs through their mind as well in that if they, they haven't ever hit rock bottom or had a moment of tremendous adversity where they felt like they couldn't escape, mm. how can they tap into what are obviously very great learnings without, I know you're not going to say go and get an addiction or go yeah, and find yeah. yourself in jail, but I'm the type of person that, I still step outside of my comfort zone and I still always have goals and, and, and want to pursue new things and, and grow. But then I almost, and, and this is where it sounds weird, I almost have a degree of envy for someone that has hit rock bottom yeah. and has worked through that, has come out the other side because I can see and feel that they have grown enormously from that. Yeah. It's why people in AA will call themselves a grateful alcoholic. You know, when I was newly sober, I was like, what? Why would you say that? And it's because there is a reverence and a respect for that painful place, you know, that Julie calls your divine moment. Like pain can be a gift. Those those uh, occurrences where you're forced to meet your maker and you're stripped away of your ego and your pride and, and really confronted with yourself in the most profound way are our greatest teachers and opportunities for growth. And I wish, you know, you're, to your point, your question of like, how do we take advantage of the wisdom available to us without having to, you know, endure that kind of pain? Like, I fucking wish I knew the answer to that. You know what I mean? Like the only thing that's ever really gotten my attention and gotten me to change is when I'm in an adequate amount of pain where I'm like, okay, I I will finally let go. But in truth, I didn't have to be in that kind of pain. I could have read that book or listened to that podcast or watched that documentary or just looked at myself in the mirror and been honest with myself about the thing that I keep doing that I know I shouldn't be doing and just modified my behavior Why is that so difficult? Why is the human condition so imprisoned by these patterns and these loops and these 
repetitive um, thought patterns and behaviors that drag us down. You know, whether they're they're results of a, a childhood trauma or some kind of programming or you know neurological wiring that compels us to behave in a certain way, despite our better instincts and our self understanding and knowledge that is fully aware that this is the wrong choice to make. And yet the powerlessness that comes with being able to modify it, I could tell you as somebody who struggles with addiction, that it's very, very hard. And pain is the only thing that's really been able to get me to change. Now, for somebody who's not an addict, maybe they can read that book and go, I got it. Or like, you know what? I just listened to that podcast that, uh, Simon did with Robbie and Cyrus, and I get it with the, the you know, my doctor told me I'm pre-diabetic, so I'm switching, and they just do, you know? God bless you. Yeah. You know? <laughs> but I have so much compassion for the person who tries and fails and tries and fails and tries and fails, and we judge that person, and yet I think we are all, you know, we're all victim to that on on some level, and we're all, we all have our blind spots, and we all kind of know, like, oh, I should probably not do that thing anymore, and yet we keep doing it. How can we better make that switch without having to suffer? Um, I don't know, but we can. We have the capability. The information is available to us. Every moment presents a new opportunity in which we can completely reinvent ourselves. So um, we're not barred from that experience. I just think it's, I think it's difficult unless we're stripped away of the ego that encapsulates and protects that that unhealthy behavior or thought pattern or whatever it is that you're looking to modify. Someone that is, you know, repeatedly perhaps being drawn into certain activities or behaviors that they wouldn't want to, that they know are not right, like you just mentioned, Mm -hmm. but they can't work themselves out of that situation. Well, you can't solve a problem with the same thinking that got you into it or that perpetuates it. So pick a vice, you know, smoking cigarettes, gambling, shopping, you know, Instagram, whatever it is, any, any, whatever compulsion it is, you have to put a different lens on that beyond just the same thought pattern that perpetuates that behavior. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. And until you can step outside of it and come at it from a different direction, you're very unlikely to be able to master it and modify it. You spoke in your your recent episode around, do you think that you can, it's hard to do that on your own, that step? I don't think it's impossible, but I think it is. Yeah, I think it is. I think it is hard. Yeah, that was the thing with Mishka, like trying to master it, you know, do it. I feel like like, by the end, by the end of the episode, he he (laughs) completely changed his shoes. Yeah, I know. (laughs) And I say that as somebody who's compassionate for that perspective, because I'm very much an isolator, and I don't want to. Not only do I not want to ask for help, I don't want to accept help from somebody who's offering it. I want to solve it myself. I want to be self reliant. I want to be independent. I don't want to appear to be weak in in any way. And and left, you know, like my ultimate approach or strategy is to cut myself off from humanity and like just fix it in my brain. And that doesn't work for that very same reason I just said, which is I'm trying to fix a problem with the same brain that created it. The only way out of that is to ask and accept help from other people. And as counterintuitive or as uncomfortable as that might be, in my experience, that's the only way that I've been able to kind of migrate out of those patterns and behaviors. And it's a relief to not have to do it yourself. 
I think the alcoholic mind is is one of isolation and that kind of addictive mentality can't survive in an open, honest, communal environment. You guys spoke about ayahuasca, but briefly, I think, how different people handle different things, different programs, whatnot. And kind of circling back to where I was initially going with this is if I think about myself not having sort of hit rock bottom and had those learnings and, you know, to a degree, almost feeling like I need some greater challenge. I don't know why I think that. I just just have this burning, you know, everything's fine, but I feel like where, what am I working towards? What, what am I going to achieve that is going to rap, cause rapid growth? Um, or what, what journey mm-hmm. am I not currently on the course that I could go and in, investigate and explore? And I'm not saying Ayahuasca is one of those, but the reason that that came up was I was thinking that, you know, I've heard of people going and doing Ayahuasca who, who are not really looking for any form of healing, but they're looking to sort of just like tap into another part of their mind. We can put that, we can park that. But what would you say to someone who perhaps doesn't feel like they have enough challenge in their life and they're sort of assessing things? In the context of ayahuasca? No, not in the context. So I'm using that as an example of, I know that as an example, some people who, who are not not sure what their next course is, may go and do ayahuasca yeah. and, and see if they can discover something about themselves mm-hmm. they didn't already know. Mm-hmm. The only reason I brought that up was because on the top of my head, I remembered you spoke about it in that episode um, or John did or someone. But to the point of the question, it's more if things are going well for someone, but they just think that they need more of a challenge, what would your advice be? Seek out that challenge. You know what I mean? I think, it, I think it's so easy to be soft. You know, listen to even people like I've had on the show, like Jesse Itzler, you know, guys made tons of money and he's still seeking out all of these uncomfortable challenges to keep him sharp when he doesn't have to do any of that kind of stuff. I think that everything in our culture is about maximizing luxury and relaxation and comfort and, you know, the good life, right? Like, how can we create ease in our life? And I think that that has created a society of very unhappy people, right? What we should be telling people and encouraging them to do is to seek out discomfort, is to relish and welcome challenges into your life. And they can be physical challenges, but they don't have to be. They can be challenges of anything that is pushing you outside of your comfort zone and forcing you to grow interpersonally, whether it's physically, mentally, emotionally, spiritually. I think our experiences that we should all be, that should be our default to always be searching those out. And short of that, I think we become unhappy, depressed, isolated, discontent. And it's interesting because the forces of, of modern culture and marketing are counter-programming what truly makes us feel alive and happy and connected, which is why you're seeing all of these you know, the explosion of the ultra endurance community and the tough mutters and the Spartan races and all of these things. These these are like artificial recreations of natural experiences that have been stripped away from our daily experience. So we have millions of people who have been programmed that life is about the alarm clock, getting up, making the coffee, getting in the car, commuting, sitting at the cubicle, 
taking shit from the boss and living for the weekend where you're going to barbecue and watch the game and maybe see your buddies. And then you have that two week vacation. You're going to go to Vegas or maybe the golf trip with your with your bros and then the ski trip with the family. And that's life. Right. But who made that decision? And is that really what's making us happy? I believe in investing in experience above all, certainly instead of all the material you know, accumulation that has become the gestalt of what it means to be a successful person in our culture. But we've got to relish and bring in challenge into our life in a multitude of ways. And that's the only way you become a dynamic, well-rounded person who feels connected to yourself and to your fellow man and to the world. I think, I mean, if I was to sort of summarize what you just said then, I was just running through my mind how that kind of relates to me. <laughs> but um, we all, and listen, let me just say this before, sorry to interrupt yeah. you, but I'm not saying that I've mastered this. Like now I'm in a place where I've been doing this, po- I've got 500 episodes of the podcast and I kind of have my own routine. It doesn't involve commuting in a cubicle and a boss, but it's my version of that. And mm-hmm. it's very, and it's successful now and it's making money. So it's very easy for me to go, well, I'm just going to ride this thing out. And then what began as a personal challenge and and something that was very uncomfortable has now become very comfortable. And so the challenge for me is like, well, do you have the courage to put this in the rearview mirror and try something else or to play Mm -hmm. with the format or to create a scenario in which this doesn't monopolize all your time? So you do have time for these other challenges. And those are the things that I that I'm thinking about right now. Yeah, the monopolizing of the time is interesting because I think even if you just look at, I guess, the, the time that we're born into, um, it feels like there is this almost like immediate need for people to advocate and stand for something and, and create change literally from just what's going on in the world. And like how important is is finding that balance of of going, you know what, this means something to me. I want to, you know, dedicate my life to helping in a positive way to impact something, but without forgetting that you need to also look after yourself and fill your own cup so you can continue doing that. Yeah. I mean, that's a difficult balance, you know, that I've struggled with, to be honest with you. Like I, I'm, I'll, I'll very much default to being the martyr and just, you know, exploiting myself for the sake of whatever it is I'm trying to put out into the world and not look after myself until I'm so burned out that I have to go to Australia for a month, you know, and reboot. And, and balance such, feels such very a bad thing, like, yeah. like my whole thing is like, and maybe this comes from being, you know, a lifelong athlete. Like if you haven't suffered, then you're, you didn't work hard enough. Right. So whether I'm doing a podcast or writing something like, in, unless it's created pain in my life, then I need to squeeze that stone a little bit harder before I'm going to put it out into the world. And that's not necessarily a healthy relationship with content creation. You know, what if it was easy? And what if you could trust that what you're doing is good and you don't have to be a martyr or suffer in order for the quality to be at the level that is, you know, sufficient to carry the message that you're trying to put out in the world? You know what I mean? So that's like my, and that's really uncomfortable to me because I know how to like hurt, make it hurt and, you know, push myself. But what does it feel like to like a, do it in a in a it, with more grace and more self love? That's more uncomfortable for me. Like that's the discomfort. Is that something that you're working on? Yeah, very much so. Like, what would I just had this guy Kamal Ravikant on my show? He's like a Silicon Valley legend. He wrote a book called "Love Yourself Like Your Life Depends on It." I haven't put it up yet, but 
it's a long story, but basically he he kind of reaches a bottom and has to figure out how he's how to make his way in the world. And it begins with him making a commitment to himself that he's going to love himself, right? And that starts with a mantra and a meditation practice, but also this habit of checking in with himself to say repeatedly throughout the day, what would I do in this situation if I loved myself, right? So, so you're asking, yeah, it's like a very simple thing, but like, if I love myself, like, or what would somebody in this situation who did love themselves do? And like trying to model your behavior after that, as opposed to like the self-flagellation, the flogging, you know, that that I will do every single time on myself. And I've been, tr- I've been playing around with that and it's, it's profound. Yeah. When's that episode coming out? <laughs> I have to look. I don't know. I stacked. How far ahead episodes. are you recording? Too much. Yeah. I've, I'm now Wait, suffering from, I have 17 episodes in the can right oh, now. Oh, wow. That's making me sound too, lazy. <laughs> too, but it, it's, if it makes, if this will make you feel better, it's too many. Cause then it's like, oh, hey, you came and did my show. Like, oh yeah, you'll, your, yours will be out in July. Yeah. You know, like it's not, you know, and you can't expect them to be excited about that. Like I'm trying to get ahead of the game, but if you're too far ahead, then I think it works at cross purposes. Mm, I'm, I'm sure they're happy enough just coming to hang out. Not, not when you have a book. Yeah. You know? Okay. The time, well, <laughs> yeah. I've, I've since learned because in Australia, the, the sort of sales in the first week or pre-sales, it's not so important. Oh, there's, no, huge, there's no, there's no bestsellers list in Australia. Yeah, it's hugely um, important here. Whereas here, it's all about that early right. momentum, right? Yeah, it's all about uh, pre-sales, like in the weeks and months before on-sale date. And then that first week dictates like all those bestseller lists. And that influences the buy volume at all the bookstores. So they look at that number and they say, this is how much action this book is getting. So when... This is super inside baseball, but like when, you know, podcasting has now become the new book tour, like rather than going to a bookstore and like reading from your book, you go on podcasts, much more efficient use of your time, right? But authors will do their publicity in the like, you know, two weeks prior to the book coming out through the first week. And they all want that episode to go up right away to hit that sweet spot. And and one of the great things is that when somebody has a book coming out, you're more likely to be able to get time with that person when ordinarily they don't do press, right? So it's this balance of, you know, it's it's a weird thing. Like podcasting is not, we're not journalists, but we're not publicists either. We live in this weird liminal space where we're kind of neither and both. Like we want to position our guests in the best light possible. We're hosting them because we're inherently interested in what they have to say. And there is an interplay, like a politics to this in that, like you can access these people when they have books coming out, right? Yeah, sure. But then there's an expectation that you're going to share yeah, that yeah, yeah. in a timely manner. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. anyway. Yeah, I know the feeling. I mean, we should say, I, I, I bet you get a lot of emails about books that you don't cover as well. And that's because it might not necessarily well, I be. I get like my, yeah, I get like six to 10 books in the mail a week Yeah, because all the, the houses all send them to you ahead of time. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, which is cool. Let's have a full library. But yeah, it makes it look like I read more books than I do. Yeah, we should probably touch on something to do with vegan veganism <laughs> or something. Yeah. Should we? I know. I mean, you think. <laughs> um, the, uh, the Plant Proof podcast that doesn't speak about right. anything to do with plants. Um, let's explore that a little bit. I don't think we talked about this too much in the, in the last episode we did, but even if we did, I still find it interesting now. What does it mean to you to live a vegan lifestyle? It means simultaneously more and less than it ever has. And what I mean by that is 
my relationship to this lifestyle has continued to evolve in the 13 years since I've adopted it. You know, it's a dynamic shifting relationship that began with, you know, quite honestly, like vanity and personal regard for my health. Like I was overweight and I was unfit and I didn't like the reflection in the mirror and I wanted to change the, you know, these things. And I didn't want to suffer from the heart disease that, that, that killed my grandfather at an early age. My vision didn't extend beyond that. And now the environmental concerns and more importantly, the animal welfare and, and considerations around compassion and how we treat these sentient beings have become really important. And that was a subject matter that I knew very little about and was very uncomfortable with when I began this journey. So much so that when I began the podcast, I wasn't even sure that I wanted to have people like Gene Bauer on the show. Was you that know, because like, of the sort of the stigma associated with I think veganism? That, I think that that this lifestyle and this way of eating and living had so revolutionized everything about how I was living my life had literally given me a new life. And I wanted to be able to share that in a way that could potentially transform other lives in a positive way. And I was looking at the word vegan and what that represented as a limiter to that goal in the sense that the word vegan comes with a certain amount of baggage attached to it because it's very much or as much a political movement as it is about what you're eating, right? It's about a sensibility. It's about, you know, a perspective on the world. And I think for certain people, that's phenomenal, but I think it's off putting for others. And I wanted to be able to put out the most universally non-controversial vibe that I possibly could so that I could appeal to the most number of people with this way of eating and living. And I still feel that in certain respects. And I think, I think vegans can be their own worst enemies in many ways, but I really do care about animal rights. And I really think it is the evolution of the civil rights movement. And it's appalling to me the way that we treat these these beings and the lack of compassion that we have for these systems that we've erected to produce the food <laughs> to feed the planet, I think is abominable and demands our attention and redress. I think that, you know, the environment is at a critical flashpoint right now where sustainability is basically critical if we want to survive as a species. And I find these on-ramps to be not only compelling, but also really embraced, especially by younger people. And the more educated I become on these subject matters, the more comfortable I am talking about them and the more they become front and center to my entire ethos. So in that regard, my definition and perspective and relationship with the vegan lifestyle or the plant-based lifestyle has become more expansive. Where it's become more limited is that I don't like the idea of, of defining who I am through the lens of the food that I eat, right? And in the sense, same way that very early on, I wanted the aperture on my podcast to be very broad and about personal development in all regards, you know, I eat a plant-based diet. I live a vegan lifestyle. These are aspects of who I am, but I don't, I resist the idea of being labeled in this regard because then it becomes, there's this idea that that's the totality of who you are and that you're, you're, what you care about is limited to those things. And I would not consider myself to be defined in that way. 
I like that. I mean, it, it resonates a lot with sort of how I see things. What would your, and I know you don't like telling people what to do, but what would, based on that experience, there clearly is still stigma. What would your advice be for vegans in general who are looking to better connect with someone who sees the world through that different lens? Through meeting somebody who who just can't grok the vegan lifestyle at all, you mean? So, no, someone who is a, a vegan advocate, right? Uh-huh. But wants to detach themselves from that stigma so mm-hmm. that they can better converse and better connect with people who are on the other side that don't see the world through the vegan lens. Yeah. Well, I think it begins with with a healthy dose of humility. I think what happens is that when you you know, find a way of, of living that works for you and it's become transformative, then it's very easy to then think this is the path for everybody and you need to hear what I have to say and my way is better. How come you can't see it in this regard? And there's, a, there's an ego attachment that I think begins to ensue. And I think we need to understand that no matter how positive this lifestyle change has been for you, that it's still not incumbent upon you to tell other people how to live. And I think it's also important to understand that the vegan lifestyle is one of, it's an aspirational lifestyle. We are aspiring to live more gently on planet Earth. We are aspiring to exude more compassion for not just the animals, but other human beings. And that that involves reserving a little bit of judgment and trying to see the world through the perspective of that other person who's living their life in a very different way. We also have to appreciate that no matter how advanced that aspiration is, and no matter how entrenched your vegan lifestyle habits are, that you are still not living you know, a harm-free life, you know, whether, whether you're driving a car and insects are crashing into your windshield or you're eating produce that was, you know, produced on a farm that had to kill a bunch of animals in order to produce that fruit or whatever, we're all complicit on some level. And so like, take it down a notch and try to just be present with your fellow man. And I think when you come from a, a place of, of, compassion and mutual respect, you're in a better position to have a healthier, more productive conversation that shouldn't be results-driven or attached to trying to convince somebody that you are correct. So can you opt out of that need or desire and allow yourself to just be 100% present with another person for an exchange? I think that's the per- I, mean? I think that's the perfect spot to <laughs> to close this one out. <laughs> did any of that make sense at all? No, I feel did. like I'm talking circles. No, no, no. I hope, no. I hope it. There's a lot of wisdom there. Right, <laughs> we'll wait for those reviews. <laughs> well, rich 500 episodes. Congratulations! I look forward to hopefully another 500, and definitely, I promise, I'll, I'll come up and see you in October. Yeah, man. Get that book done. At some point when the, the book is is finally yeah. done. It's uh, yeah, always a pleasure to have you on the show and hope we can do it again soon. Thanks, man. I, I really appreciate you having me on again. It's been, it's been really fun and great getting to know you a little bit better. Like I said at the outset, we were able to spend a little bit of time in Australia and I am determined 
to go back to Bondi <laughs> and to pay for my own dinner <laughs> at no, a restaurant, it's not happening. which you refuse to allow me to do. If, so. uh, some, I, I know some of the, the incredible staff at Eden tuning uh, to this show, so yeah. do not let Rich pay. When I go, I'm telling you right now. <laughs> Someone else paid Eden, for your dinner one night. Like, I'm going to go there. I'm not going to tell you, and I'm going <laughs> to literally, staff, are you listening to me? You've, I'm going to just let, you've no, got to let me I, I had the staff. I had the staff dialed in. They knew. <laughs> yeah, okay. <laughs> Um, thank you, man. Oh, man. And, uh, I can't wait for your book to be finished. And as soon as you, uh, get it done and, uh, stop all this podcasting, which is distracting you from getting this book done, uh, then you can come on my show and we can talk about it. More. Thanks for the chase. Appreciate it. Thanks. Jesus. Damn good. My pleasure. There we go. Pretty cool to hear about the beginnings of the Rich Roll podcast from just an idea to easily one of the most impactful shows in the world, in the education and wellness space. Everything starts with an idea. And when that idea is powered by a deeper purpose and sense of fulfillment, it's so much more likely to succeed. And succeed, Rich has done. If you enjoyed today's listen, please let Rich know on social media. You can find him most easily on Instagram at Rich Roll. And as I said in the intro, if you haven't read his book, Finding Ultra, grab a copy, no better time to read it than now in isolation, particularly if you're feeling down in the dumps and in need of some motivation. All right, coming up next week's episode, Drew Harrisberg and I for episode 100, a fluid conversation where Drew throws a few questions my way for a change. In the meantime, as I mentioned in the introduction, keep an eye on my Instagram. I've got a bunch of live Instagram chats penciled in with the likes of Dr. Gout Davis, Neymar Delgado, and plenty of others. I've been really enjoying these conversations, so jump in, ask questions in live time, and listen to us chat about various topics. That's it for this one, friends. Catch you next week. Bye.